some things that are helpful to most people and really hopefully get to know some people. And I am one of those one of those people that uh, that has been in our church now for the last few months has been um Garrett, who has spent 27, 28 years of their life in um, in Africa. We're now helping uh, another ministry in Africa. Plus, we're also helping in other other places down in, in um, uh, not South America, but Guatemala um, uh, there, uh, and have uh, we've done some other places too. And, uh, we're in we're we're in Turkey, uh, and uh, but he has spent actually thirty something years there in Turkey. I, I really hope that we can see this today how needful this is. When this is over with, they've got all kinds of books and other things out there. We've got some hats. I've got one of the hats. Uh, my wife tells me I don't need to wear the hat, but I say, okay, I'll get a hat. And so, but just for a donate, whatever you feel like the Lord lays on your heart, I'm hoping and praying that you raise it on your heart to really do it, but to help them uh, in this mission. Uh, let me just read this to you. Brother Eugene Back uh, has, has worked for an organization called Back to Jerusalem. And also with him today is Will, Will Gray, and we welcome both of you. Brother Eugene is the author of several books. They're, li- they're out here. Just to list a few, I Stand with Christ uh, was one of those books, Smuggling Life in the Underground Church. Brother Eugene lived most of his adult life in China. He left China pre-pandemic and presently resides somewhere in Sweden. The location is not disclosed here to read. I hope that you all saw this angle. That uh, Brother Graham uh, had a gentleman from China to speak at the, on the mall, and there were gentlemen that showed up from China that supposedly showed up at his house and threatened his wife. And I think they're now underground, at least what I understand. So this is not just a, this is a big deal, it really is. Um, and so Brother Eugene is an international speaker. He has a podcast on Back to Jerusalem website. Is intimately involved in a house church in China, intimately involved in God's work in 32 countries around the world via uh, the use of teaching gifts. So, indigenous, anyway, Chinese missions called to complete the Great Commission by taking the gospel east to west through the remaining unreached countries of the 10 to 40 windows back to Jerusalem. The 10 to 40 window, more than 90% of the unreached people group live in the region between 10 and 40 degrees north latitude. This includes more than 5,000 groups with little or no gospel witness. All 50 countries with the least gospel exposure are located in these regions, which is spiritually dominated by Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Many of these countries violently persecute Christians the 1040 window is the focus of Back to Jerusalem Mission. I want you to give a real grace welcome and applause uh, as Brother Eugene comes, Eugene Bach, as he comes with us. Good morning. I, uh, I'm usually kind of preparing in my mind a little bit what I'm going to be saying when uh, I get up to speak at most churches that I have the honor to speak at. But that old rugged cross got me. I have not heard that song 
for so many years. And when it, when it was sung, I was flooded with emotion and lost all thought that I was going to be singing today. And then you guys did the POWMIA ceremony today. I mean, when you start talking about those things, you feel that, that passion of patriotism, right? You usually don't follow that up with a message about China. Uh, when you start talking about POWs and, and, and supporting military vets, you, you often don't follow that up with talking about overseas Christians in communist countries. And I, I know that feeling. I mean, my background is I'm, I was in the U.S. military. I, I did two tours uh, in the Persian Gulf with the U.S. Marine Corps. My oldest son is actually in his junior year at a senior military college training to be a Marine Corps officer. And my youngest just applied. He's a senior in high school, and he just applied to the U.S. Air Force Academy. So we love the U.S. military. And when God called me to missions over 20 years ago, I really felt he was nuts. I had no, I said, you know, God, if you want me to shoot somebody, I can do that. Now, I'm, my background is I was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps, which means I was good at two things, shooting people and cleaning toilets. Those are the two things that I would be highly qualified for. Missions, I really didn't have any qualifications for. And then God called us to China. And I felt, not only is he calling me to a country I don't like, he's calling me to a country where I can't speak the language. My wife is from Sweden. She speaks five languages. She didn't learn English until she was about eight years old. It's her third language. She speaks better English than me. She corrects me on my English. In fact, I often joke that when we were dating, I used to send her love letters, and she would send them back corrected. I'm not gifted at language at all. So when I went into China, I thought, how in the world am I supposed to speak this language in a country that is communist, and I don't like communists? I thought I liked Chinese people until I moved to China and found out that not every place in China is Panda Express. For the first 30 days that I lived in China, I ate McDonald's every single day. I did not like being in China. God and I had an argument. I, I, I didn't understand why am I in China. This is not what I'm good at. I don't want to be on the mission field. I don't speak the language. I don't like communists. But then God began to change my ideas of what I thought I was good at and what he called me to. You see, China has uh, something that is taking place that, will, that absolutely transforms my life and my idea about what it meant to truly serve God. I started to see that China had the world's largest revival. I started to become intimately acquainted with that revival. If you guys haven't heard, allow me to be the first one to give you the good news. Today, China is having the world's largest Christian revival. It's not close to anywhere else. Right now, China's seen at least, more than, but at least, 28 to 30,000 new believers every 24 hours. About a million a month. It is radically transforming the world, the Christian world, as we know it. Just a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago is not really that long ago. But just a hundred years ago, more than 90% of the world's Christian body lived in Western Europe, in North and South America. Today, 
46% of the world's Christian body live in Asia and Africa. We are seeing a massive transformation. So I had all these ideas of what I thought was good, and I thought I was good at, and what I thought I was not good at. And then I started hearing about this vision called Back to Jerusalem. And it was this idea that Back to Jerusalem is this calling of the Chinese that are coming out of this revival to complete the Great Commission, to go to the final frontiers of the gospel mission field, the places where the gospel has never been before. And I was listening, and I thought, wait a minute. God is calling you to go and preach to other countries. And I said, yes, that's right. That doesn't make any sense. Why did God call me to China if He's going to call the Chinese out of their own country to go preach in other countries? Wouldn't it be nice if you first reached the people here in China? And they said, yeah, we believe that God has called certain people to come to China and preach the gospel in China, but God has called us to go into other countries. And one of those countries was an African country called Sudan. And I can remember traveling with the Chinese missionaries to Sudan. And when I got into Sudan, I really didn't know what I was supposed to do. I remember I was speaking one day at a, at a sermon. I had a sermon one day inside of a tent. And at the back of the tent was this military general. And he's a big guy from what they call the, the, the Vietnam. And at the end of the sermon, this this tribal member comes up and he asks me, would it be possible for you to come and share the message that you just shared here at our military base? This, this is a big, big guy. I mean, he blocks the sun. He was a good... You ever, ever saw anybody from that, that from the Deacon tribe? They're like six five at least. So he's towering over me. So if he's going to ask me to do something, I'm going to be probably pretty unable to do it. I mean, I don't want to make this guy upset. So he says, I would like you to come and share the gospel at our base. I said, sure, I would, I would, I would absolutely love to. Where's it at? But I can't tell you. We're a rebel base. A rebel base? How long is it going to take to get there? I can't tell you that. So I told our friend, please text my wife, tell her if she doesn't hear from me in a couple of days, just wait longer. So I traveled. I had no clue where I was going. It took us two days to get to this rebel base. And we're driving in this small little barren forest. You don't find a lot of forests in Sudan. We had just come from the Nuba Mountains, which is right in the middle of North Sudan and South Sudan. And I thought, what am I going to do? I don't really have a message to share with this group. I don't really feel like I'm called to be serving together with the Chinese. I definitely don't feel like I should be in the deserts of Africa. And I really doubted what I was supposed to be doing. And then he pulled up uh, to this base. People started coming out from behind the trees. And I got out of the vehicle. And then I started to hear a familiar sound that I was, that I was acquainted with. Marching the street. About 2,000 with the SPLB started marching out. And all of a sudden, when I saw them in their military uniforms marching together, I thought, I'm back in my element. This is what I was made for. And I remember the, 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 the African soldiers, as they came and, and they got in front of me, all of a sudden I had that, that old feeling back again where I was, and I could see all of their faces 
these military phases, and one that even though we spoke a different language, we had that same military spirit. And I thought, this is what God has called me to do. Now, the reason why the Chinese were in Sudan, the reason I was with them at that time, was because they have a vision to take the gospel to the areas that have never been before. We call ourselves back to Jerusalem. It's a vision of the Chinese church, but basically it's the Great Commission. That's all it is. We call it the Great Commission with Kung Pao Church. The, the, the focus of the Great Commission for them is the area between China and Jerusalem. That area that we often call the 1040 window, we often call it the Indian Ark because you have the Ark that kind of starts over in Indonesia, wraps around the Indian Ocean and down the east coast of Africa. This area is where we have two-thirds of the world's population. Believe it or not, America is not the center of the world. Most of the world's population do not live here in this country. Two-thirds of the world's population actually live in that window between China and Jerusalem. So I want you to think about this for a second. Two-thirds of the world's population living between China and Jerusalem. Nine-tenths of the world's unreached are also in that window. So that means nine out of every ten people who never heard the gospel, even one time, live in the region between China and Jerusalem. This is the final frontier. Let me ask you just really quick. How many people here would like to see the return of Christ? I, I, I mean, I, it's okay if you don't raise your hand. If you, if you don't raise your hand, I know kind of what that, that is like. I mean, I can remember, I didn't come from a Christian family, right? So when I first became a Christian, I was 14 years old. Didn't, nobody in my family really taught me about the Bible. I just started to attend a church that was close to my house. And then one night, some pastor comes and he starts preaching about Jesus returning. Now, he said that I was supposed to be excited about it, so I was excited about it. But then he starts crying, Jesus returned, Jesus returned, Jesus returned. And I started to think, did this guy commit a crime? Because he's wanting Jesus to return maybe before the police get here. I, he sounds like he's pretty urgent about Jesus coming back quickly. And I started to join in that prayer, Jesus returned, Jesus returned. And then I started to think to myself, I was very honest and thought, you know, it would be nice if you returned. But then I thought, and I don't know how to put this in a church sermon, but nicely, you know, I wanted to know what it would be like to be married to a woman. And so would it be possible, God, for you to delay your return if you were going to return tonight, to at least to, after that timeline? But then I found out what it was like to be loved. And the more I fell in love with him, the more I became disgusted with the world around me. And the more I became disgusted with the world around me, the more I found the, the politics were corrupt, that there was injustice for the poor, there was injustice for the downtrodden. And I love them because Christ loved them and Christ is in me, so I love them as well. And now I cry out with that same voice that I heard that evangelist cry out with so many years ago, Christ, come back, Christ, come back. So when we say we want to see the return of Christ, Jesus actually told us how we can see it. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was talking about the end of time. And the disciples started to ask Jesus, Jesus, can you tell us when will all of these things come to pass? And so Jesus began to explain to them 
in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, whenever you hear about war and rumors of war and earthquakes and disasters in various places, that's not the end. You will be dragged before authorities for my name's sake. But those are the birthing pains. That's not yet the end. And then he gets to verse 14. See, sometimes we try to read all numbers and try to see all these signs. But Jesus said very clearly, chapter 24, verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all the people groups, and then the end will come. So if we want to see the return of Christ, we have to see the completion of the Great Commission. How are we doing that? area between China and Jerusalem. Two-thirds of the world's population, nine-tenths of the people that have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ until today. So, if we want to truly see the return of Christ, don't you think that we would do everything in our power to meet those unreached people groups with the good news of Jesus Christ? That you would think that would be our top priority. Think about this. When we look at missions, the, the number of, of, of people that are living in this 1040 window, the, the, the number of people that have never heard the gospel, when you do fundraisers for missions, where do you think most of the funding would go? You would think that most of the funding would go to this area between China and Jerusalem, right? You would think that most of our efforts would go that region. But they don't. Very few resources exist. And in fact, we see that out of every hundred dollars given to mission, this is what it's going to take. Every hundred dollars given to mission, only two pennies goes to only people. Only one penny makes it to the region between China and Jerusalem. So can we honestly say that we want to see the return of Christ if we put so little investment, so little resources into seeing the return of Christ? You know, when we ask, what do we need to complete the Great Commission? Or what do we need to complete the Great Commission? What do we need to see everybody hear the gospel message at this point? You say here one of two answers, right? You say here, well, in our lifetime. But in the year 2019, we spent more money on Halloween costumes for our dogs than we did on the Great Commission that goes between China and Jerusalem. In fact, that's not even fair to compare it to Halloween costumes for our pets uh, because that amount is so much larger so I, I sat down in my office one day in China and started to talk with some of our staff members. I was like, let's try to find something to put it into perspective that is almost dollar for dollar equal. And we found something. When we looked at the amount that is spent on missions and the amount of something else that equates it, we found that McDonald's 
spends almost the same amount as Christians in America on missions. McDonald's spends about the same amount on ketchup bottles. So, it's not about the need for money. Christians actually own the majority of financial resources. God has given us everything we need financially to complete those missions. Another thing that we often hear, well, yeah, it's not about money. Maybe it's about people. Maybe if we could just get more people to the mission field. If you look at the number of Christian clergy members worldwide that are full-time supported by mission donations, 95% of those that are supported full-time actually live and work in Christian countries. Less than 5% of them are in non-Christian countries. And 0.005% of them are in the area between China and in the area that is the most needed, in the area that has not heard the gospel message as of yet. In fact, if you look at a chart of the number of nations that receive the most missionaries, what would come to mind? What nation on earth do you think receives the most missionaries? Matter of fact, they receive more missionaries than any other nation in the world, and they receive twice as much as the runner-up. their home country and take the gospel to a place that they thought it was needed, America is the number one missionary receiving nation in the world. And in fact, if you look it up, the top nine out of ten missionary receiving nations in the world are all Christian nations. We've got the people, but we've not going to the right area. When we start looking at the nations that send out the most missionaries, not numerically, but per capita. What nation do you think sends out the most missionaries to? This one blew my mind. Blew my mind because it's not even a real nation. Palestine. Palestinians send out more Christian missionaries than any other nation in the world. The second runner-up, Tonga. I had to look that one up. Tonga, where's that one? I didn't even know where that was at on a map. America doesn't even make top ten. So when I'm looking at what does it take to complete the Great Commission in our lifetime, I look to the Chinese underground house, the church that I've been working with and serving with for the last 20 years. Uh, some people said that I live in Sweden. I've only been in Sweden for the last nine months. Um, I live in China. I've lived in China for more than 20 years. My wife is from Sweden. We escaped to Sweden because they had the most relaxed uh, COVID-19 laws. We felt the most free there. We couldn't really do anything in China, so we left to Sweden. And life was pretty normal there. We kind of liked normal. I'm looking around at different faces in this church, and I'm thinking, you guys probably like normal as well. I'm not seeing a lot of social distancing or face masks taking place. But that's why we went to Sweden. So we were in Sweden for the last nine months. But today, my wife and my youngest are in uh, southern China, where we live. That's, that's our home. But for the last 20 years that I've been living inside of China, there are a couple lessons that I have learned from them, and I would just like to share them with you. I would like to tell you what we need to do in order to complete the Great Commission, but I can't. I can't because I'm not qualified. 
for the last 20 years, I've been living and serving inside of China, and I have to be honest with you. The longer I'm on the mission field, the less I understand. I mean, uh, it, it's kind of like when you're a kid, right? You, you look at the grown-ups around you, and you kind of think these grown-ups know everything. And when I become a grown-up, I'll also know everything. And then you become a grown-up, and you realize that nobody around you knew anything. And now you also realize that you know nothing. That's kind of like me inside of China. I knew more on day one than I know today. I was more confident about what I knew on day one when I arrived in China than I know today. So I'm not a China expert. In fact, I would say that's an oxymoron. Uh, an oxymoron in the way that you say veggie burger, right? Those two words, those things don't go together. If you say, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of bad food in my life living inside of China. I've had very few things worse than a veggie burger. Uh, those two words don't belong together. I remember I took a bite of one one time, didn't like it, gave it to my dog. My dog didn't like it. My dog had to lick his butt for a week trying to get the taste out of his mouth. Veggie and burger are two words that don't go together, right? And so I mean, it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. It, it's kind of like secure election. It's a two words that don't really, that maybe that's a little too soon for that one. It's a little too sore, so I won't get, but I'm not a China expert. So I can share with you from the mission field, observations that I've made in China that I think can help us understand what we need to do in our lifetime to complete the Great Commission. Before I do that, I would love just a quick chance to look at a Bible verse, if that's all right, and turn to the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, chapter 17, I'm not going to spend much time here. I just want to look at it quickly because this area of the Bible has been transformed for me. This area of the Bible, I no longer look at the same because of my time in China. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. In verse 14, we see that Jesus is with his disciples, and his disciples are having a challenge. They, they, they want to heal a guy that has challenges, but they're not able to. Uh, and so Jesus walks in, and like nobody's business, he does what they can't do. And they're confused. They're like, why, why is it that you have the power to heal and we don't? Why is it that you have the authority to do these things and then we don't? And Jesus kind of takes them off to the side and says in verse 19 this. The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive this? And Jesus replied, my Bible might read a little bit different than yours, but verse 20, because you have Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Faith as a mustard seed. When I start talking about the number of people in the world that have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, it sounds daunting. It sounds huge. It sounds like an immovable mountain that is too big for one church or one individual to tackle. But Christ says if we have the faith of a mustard seed, one of the things that I have learned while being inside of China is that you don't have to believe anybody to be believed You see, most of the people that I work with inside of China, they're not educated. They're not leaders. They haven't been to a famous Bible school. They haven't been to a theology simple farmers. 98% of the people that I work with inside of China 
to emphasize it. Very simple individuals that have the audacity to read God's Word and believe it. They have not been told by those that are more educated what God is capable of and what He is not capable of. I have seen the most unassuming individuals put me to shame when it comes to having the, 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 the fearlessness of reaching the unreached. So, in China, we have this vision, right? This vision of the, the Chinese back to Jerusalem missionaries that are being raised up from this revival. They're going into unreached countries, living there and preaching there and planting churches there. So we have a small school that we have put up for the Chinese underground house church missionaries to prepare them for the language, the culture, cross-cultural missions, those kind of things. And we have this little jungle school, Bible school, that we put together. And because of my background in the military, our school runs a little bit different than most schools. You see, our school has an interrogation uh, most people, if you ever go to a Bible school here in the United States, don't be looking up in the syllabus the interrogation section. You probably won't find it. But the Chinese are going into areas that are aggressive against the good news of Jesus Christ. And you have to be prepared. So what I do is I set up and I work together with the local police. We have it in, the, in this little small island uh, in another uh, Southeast Asian country. And in the Southeast Asian country, uh, I, I work together with the police. The, the Chinese do not know that it's coming. I ask the Chinese teachers to put the students through about three days, two or three days of food and, and sleep deprivation. They don't know that they're being food deprived or sleep deprived. They just think that they're really, really busy, right? So I go there, and they don't see me, but I bring in the police. And in the middle of the night, right when they're getting their good sleep, I go and have the police get them out of their bed and pull them out of their bed and tell them, we have some questions we have to ask you. They don't know this is coming. And so there's this little girl. She's about 18 years old. And if she turned sideways, you wouldn't see her. She's not much bigger than this mic stand right here. Just this little tight. And you can see I thought, oh no, if we interrogate her, this girl's going to pee all over herself. She's going to break in about five seconds. And we brought in all these different guys, all these different girls that, are, that were a little bit more bold. And the way we had it set up is we had the interrogators uh, sitting on one side of the table, and then we had the, the person being interrogated on another side of the table, and we had a camera filming them the whole time. Because after the interrogation, what I did is I used the tape and showed the students what they did wrong, right, what they did wrong, what they can do better. And then I brought in house church pastors that have been arrested and thrown in prison and beaten for their faith. Come in and share with these students, this is what I went through, this is how you can survive these kind of situations afterwards. So everybody that we brought in, they cooperated, they sat in the chairs, and then the police, like always, tell them, start off easy, you know, just got some questions about your teacher, no big deal, and then start getting them in traps, get more aggressive, start threatening them, and we do it until the sun comes up. So they're exhausted, they're tired, they're, they're, they're broken down. And then it was time for this little, teeny, little girl, 18 years old. I mean, if you said, please, 
And they said, no, 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 this is your seat. And she said, I'm fine. And he said, no, no, you have to sit here. She goes, I'm good. And they argued with her for about five minutes. Finally, one of the police, because I'm watching from a window that she can't see. They, the, the, one of the police officers come over and they, they share with me, she's not sitting in the seat that you told her to. It's like, dude, you outweigh her by about three times. Go and make her sit in that seat. They did the interrogation from her seat. So we only have the filming of the interrogators. We don't have any filming of her reaction because she had her back to the camera. And as soon as they started the questioning, she said, uh, can I go use the restroom? So one of the interrogators came back and he said, you want to go use the restroom? You want to use this against her? The more she has to go, the more she's going to tell us. So we're, we're going to let her sit there and deal with it, and hopefully she'll be more open with information to get her to break. Every question she just kept coming back to that. We lasted until daylight. She gave them almost nothing. They were almost in tears trying to get it out of her. And at the end, I walk in and I was like, this is all a part of training. And I said, now you can go and use the restroom. She said, I don't have to use the restroom. I said, but you just, you've been saying like for the last four hours you have to use the restroom. She goes, yeah, I'm just going to go out to the restroom and make a run for it. She was a lion. I, she was completely unassuming. I did not assume anything great of her. Why? Because she had the faith of a mustard seed. And God used that to be able to help her have boldness in situations where those that were faster, stronger, smarter would have broken. But God used someone who had the simple faith of a mustard seed. I've seen God take farmers in China and make them pastors over millions. I, that's no exaggeration. One of my best friends that I work with, his church is a little small church in China of only about 4 million believers. I, I, have, a, I have a book here of a, a brother that he probably he has the most well-known underground house church in China. It's called the Chinese Gospel Fellowship. Pastor Shen spent about two years writing his story together with him. His church, you can look it up online, Wikipedia, it's one of, by itself, his church is one of the largest denominations in the world. Ten million believers. These books, by the way, are available for any donation. We decided years ago not to sell our books. If you have a donation, you can give it. Take whatever books you want. If you don't have a donation, you take any book anyway. Because we need to publish your story. We want your partnership. And we think that's more valuable than anything that you can share and share better. Those books are available for you. We have those out back. And um, as I look at those pastors that have done so much, when I sat down with this pastor, I wanted to ask him, Pastor Shen, how in the world did you build a church of 32 million believers? Because I wanted to know the secret sauce. I wanted to know the formula. What exactly did you do? What flow chart did you use? Because I can write a 12-step book, and that will be a big seller of how to build a church of over 10 million believers. They don't do any advertising. They have the faith of a mustard that breaks the bond. Have, let me ask this. Have you ever been to a mission conference 
or a church, like a, like a huge mega church, when you walk inside, there's like the most amazing worship just welcoming you in. And, 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 and you get in and it, you feel like you're almost floating on a cloud as you're walking in there because the, the music just envelops you. It's the best praise and worship that you've ever heard in your life. And then the pastor gets up and he's a wordsmith. Is able to sew together words in ways that you never even thought possible. He puts images with mere words alone that you just can't think out of your mind. And, and when he speaks, you get chill bumps because it's like, oh wow, this is amazing. And then you stand up and you walk out, and nothing in your life has changed. You never seen that? Like with, with all of the gifts, all of the talents, all of the resources, all of the smoke machines and the lights. You thought that with that chill bump on your skin, that your life would be dramatically changed from here on out. But then you walk through the doors, leaving that fellowship, and your life is still the same, still dealing with the same problems, still committing to the same sins. You want to know why? Because it's the anointing that makes the difference. The anointing breaks the yoke. And I am meeting the simplest people inside of China that have the anointing all over them. And they're just smashing through the gates of hell. And when they speak, I'm listening, and my life is transformed. It is not the same. As I continue to look at this, this idea of a, a mustard seed, I see a couple other differences that I've noticed inside of China. You know, the idea of reaching the unreached, the idea of, of, of going to the Buddhist countries, the Hindu countries, the Muslim countries, preaching the gospel to, you know, more than a billion, two billion people, seems like a massive, massive thing. One of the things that I love about the, this story that I've kind of learned in China is that Jesus never told us how big or how small mountains. He only told us the size of the faith that was needed. And a mustard seed is a seed that you can go and buy today and look at it and get its dimensions. You can know exactly how big or how small it is. You can know everything about it. But we don't know anything about the type of mountain that Jesus is talking about here. I've learned in China the reason why that has not really been told to us is because it doesn't matter. The size of the mountain is irrelevant. It is the size of the faith that means everything. And so when I'm working together with the Chinese, even though they may not be these superstars, you may not know their names, but I'm telling you, they're making a difference in the areas that are unreached. Listen, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, uh, maybe 16 years ago, we came out with a book called The Heaven and Man. Has anybody here read a book called The Heaven and Man before? Okay, it is a book that I highly recommend. I'm biased. It is the most widely sold book on Christianity in China that's ever been written. Uh, my wife is the one that took it from Chinglish and put it into English so that it could be uh, printed. Brother Yun is this, is this Chinese evangelist that the story is about. It's a phenomenal story how he was put in China's most maximum security prison. They broke his leg and promised him he would never leave that prison alive. But God moved into his prison cell, told him with broken legs, stand up and walk out. And he stood up with broken legs. Witnesses that live here in the United States today that watched him, he stood up 
and walked out of China's most maximum security prison. This, this, these kind of stories are all over the place. That mountain seemed insurmountable. That mountain seemed intimidating. But all that was needed was the faith of a mustard seed. Here's the thing. When looking at the size of the mountain and the size of a mustard seed, we can easily be fooled. I, I, I am. I'm easily fooled. Whenever I see a big mountain, I want a mountain answer. If I'm looking at a big budget, I want a big bank account where I can set my, my agenda from the very beginning. I can set my budget from the very beginning. I can put everything in order the way, that's how I like to plan things, right? I mean, I don't want to uh, start off with a budget that is not practical for the resources that I have in my hand. So when I see a mountain-sized problem, I want to start with a mountain-sized answer. But my ways are not God's ways. And I'm learning that in China. That with the faith of a mustard seed, they might seem smaller. That's the difference between a mountain and a mustard seed. The mountain is the mustard seed. The mustard seed The mustard seed multiplies even when you don't want it to. You can beat it. You can thrash it. But that only shatters it. The church in China has been beaten. They've been thrashed. But this only made them scatter. And where they scatter, they plant their roots. And where they plant their roots, they're able to grow. And where they're able to grow, people are able to see. The mountains can't be multiplied. And the day that you think you killed the king is the day that you discover that king also died. One of the things that I love to tell about the story inside of China is that when missionaries roamed the Chinese plains, preaching the gospel, planting churches, there were not that many Christians. There were very few. Those missionaries worked hard, blood, sweat, and tears. Today, the, the revivals that I'm seeing are stamped on the shoulders of those missionaries who sacrificed so much and saw so little. But those seeds were planted deep in the ground and continued on. And when the missionaries were kicked out in 1949, the church got on its knees and began to pray for the Chinese saying that there's no way that they're going to be able to survive this darkness. Mao Zedong came to power. And his first item on his agenda was to destroy the church and kill Christians. In 1979-1980, groups of foreigners began to slowly trickle back to China. And there was a rumor of one reporter who asked Mao Zedong's wife, what is the situation with Christianity in China? And she said, if you go to our history museum, there you'll find a Chinese Bible. That is the only evidence that Christianity was ever in China. She didn't know that there had been a church that had been scattered, that had been growing. And today, China has more Christians than almost any other country in the world. Today, China has more Christians than the entire Communist Party. Today, Mao Zedong is dead. His wife is dead. They have been buried. The Communist Party members that brought persecution upon the Christians in the 1960s and 70s, they have been buried. And Christ is alive in China. That 
multiplies, and when it multiplies, it can cover an entire continent in a very short amount of time. That mountain is so small. That mountain cannot be multiplied. That mountain cannot grow anything. And the last and final point that I want to share about the, the this teaching of Jesus about the seed. The, the, the last and final thing that I feel that I have learned inside of China about this passage is that the seed is alive. And the mountain is Now, we can get excited with the idea of life versus death. We can get excited about the idea that one is alive and one is not. But what does that really translate into? What does that really mean in practice? What that means in practice is that living beings have ideas that conquer the dead. I'm seeing the most creativity coming from the church inside of China that the world has never seen. I'll give you an example. I traveled together with my friend, uh, Pastor Joshua, and we went to uh, Iraq when most people were leaving Iraq, when ISIS first invaded. Uh, we flew into Iraq. It was, it was great because they had to have planes going back and forth. They were moving so many people out of the ISIS attack areas that those planes were coming in full but going back empty. So we decided, let's take one of those empty flights back into Iraq. So me and this Chinese pastor, we flew into Iraq right as uh, ISIS was invading Mosul. And I remember uh, trying to get some friends to go with me to kind of film it. Not a lot of volunteers were putting their hand up. I remember there's one pastor in Texas, really good friend of mine. I called him. He told me, he said, Eugene, you need anything. I'll have all that. Like any way that I can. You need anything you can. But we needed a cameraman to kind of go with us and tell the story from the ground about what ISIS is doing in Iraq. It's around 2014. So I called him up and I said, uh, Pastor, I, I, I would love it if you know you and some one of your camera guys from the church, because it comes from a big church in Texas called Eli. Really a great church. They were one of the fastest growing churches for several years here in the United States. And, um, and he said, you're going to Iraq. I said, yes. He said, brother, we are with you. He said, Lord, here am I. Send my brother. So he sent his film guys to come with me. They arrived in Turkey, and it turns out he never even told them what we were going to be doing. So they arrive in Istanbul, and there is a perfect time because we had to board a flight in about two hours. And I said, our flight to Iraq leaves in about two hours. And one of the guys, an accountant by trade, says, I'm sorry, where? I said, Iraq, going into Iraq. He said, that does not sound good. I don't know if we should do that. I think we need to pray. Pray is usually a way that people uh, will, 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 will say no to you in a slow way. So he said, I need to pray about this first. But thank goodness, he didn't have that much time to pray. He was already in the airport. We were already getting ready to board. So he got on. And he said, okay, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take this flight. There's a hotel close to the airport. We're going to come back on the next flight the next day. I think that's the most responsible thing for us to do. Our flight arrived in Iraq at 2 o'clock in the morning. He said, who do you have meeting? He said, where are we going? And he said, how are we going to get there? I said, as long as we got money in most of these countries, we can get where we need to go. So we arrived, and there was one taxi cab driver 
I got you the taxi cab first, so that was my fault. And he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to start going to the area towards Mosul. And he said, do you want to leave us here? Yes. Then make room, I'm getting in. So he gets into the vehicle. We get into the vehicle and we start, um, we went into a village area just outside of Mosul where we started to serve with those that were being hit by ISIS. And I had this Chinese pastor together with me. And we're working throughout the day trying to help in every way that we can. We're handing out food. We're handing out cooking oil. We're handing out tents and blankets. And at the end of the evening, me and Pastor Joshua, we decided, let's hike up to the top of this mountain that was right behind the village in which we were working. And from the top of that mountain, at nighttime, you could see Mosul Dam Lake in the lights of Mosul. And we knew that's what ISIS was up And I remember him saying, Handing out all of these items to the people here, this is all great. I love what we're doing to help the people. But why are we doing to reach ISIS? But what are we doing to reach ISIS? My background, like I said, was in the United States Marine Corps. I was a scout sniper. I had a top ten list of the things I wanted to deliver in ISIS. The gospel was not among them. But then as he started to talk, I realized his position is more biblical than mine. His position has more eternal thoughts than my carnal thoughts. And as I'm sitting there, he begins to talk, what if in this group there is an apostle Paul that has yet to have his Damascus experience? What if these individuals that are so zealous and are willing to give their life for a lie can be given the truth? What if, instead of sending soldiers in, we begin to send missionaries? What if hearts can't be transformed from the outside, forcing its way in, but instead are transformed by Christ from the inside out? What if, instead of sending bombs, Life gives us a certain amount of creativity that does not exist in the secular world. Life helps us to think in ways that the world is not capable of because these are divine revelations. So, uh, how many people here have ever seen the Jason Valencia? Okay, I haven't because I'm a Christian. But, if you've ever seen the Jason Bourne series, there's this agent, right? At the beginning of the movie, if you haven't seen it, they, they shoot the guy and then they bring his body onto a boat and they're taking bullets out of his body and then uh, uh, the captain of the ship that is removing these bullets finds this little device that is this little capsule that when he pushes a button, it puts a projection on the wall with biblical scripture. And I saw that and I thought, why can't we as Christians develop a Bible like that? So we got this guy from Holland that he's an amazing guy that writes code. So we keep him in a basement, we feed him Doritos from time to time, and whenever we want to invent something, he's the one who writes all of the practical code that is needed in order to make it happen. So we came and we started to build this idea of making a full-size Bible. And I'm holding one in my hand right now. This Bible right here is what we were able to create for the mission field together with the Chinese. 
What is amazing about this Bible is that you simply hold it in your hand and you can read through from Genesis to Revelation. All of the scriptures of the Bible is on this little device. The battery will last for about uh, one to one and a half years and you've got all of the scriptures right in front of your face in the air that you can read wherever you are. And here's the amazing thing about it. This little Bible right here, if somebody walks in and you're reading Scripture in a place where it's illegal, it's small enough for you to simply walk in. Now, we can't promise it comes out looking the same as it goes in, but we can promise that you will have the Word of the Lord deep inside of you. Life allows us to stop thinking about what do we do to react to the enemy. And instead, it gives us ideas that make us creative in the way that now the enemy has to think, what do I have to do to react to these Christians? You see, oftentimes in the church, we have become defensive. We want to put up walls. We want to keep the bad people out and the good people in. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is we tear down walls because the enemy wants to keep us out. It's not about us wanting to keep the enemy out. They need to be praying day and night to someone that we don't go into their territory. For once, we as the church need to go on the offense, going in invading the enemy's territory, going into the area where he's kept people for generations enslaved because now that is the heart of the gospel message, that we can share the truth. And the truth sets us free. You have the answer to the world's political, economic, and military problems. Why aren't we using this message of life that we've been given? All we have to do is have faith. I want to thank you guys so much for allowing me to come and share with you guys about a little bit about what's taking place in China. I didn't get much into it. Um, I'm hoping that tonight some of you will be able to come back and join us. We'll have a question-answer session. I don't know how long that will be, Pastor, but however long it goes, it goes. And I want to let you know, as you walk out, we've got a couple of things on the table there. Um, there is a book that we just came out with. It's our latest book. This is one of the most amazing pastors, evangelists that I've been able to serve together with. He's a back to Jerusalem missionary. Um, I met him for the first time a couple of years ago. He studied under the Dalai Lama. He was a monk. So he can reveal to you a lot of the ideas that are spreading around today's society in the, in the forms of uh, breathing exercises and, and stretching exercises, the idea of Buddhism being a peaceful religion. He shatters that right smack dab down the middle. This is one of the most amazing stories because he's the only person that I know of that has ever studied under the Dalai Lama. He was a top monk in Tibet. He was the, the, the main lama over his monastery. And he became a believer and was brave enough to tell his story about how that happened. It's a phenomenal story. We also have children's books as well as like a children's book kind of world map that shows where the most unreached areas are. This is a series of 10 children's books. We only have a couple of them here with us. And the, you will not find these books in any Christian bookstore. The reason why is most Christian bookstores don't like the idea of selling Christian children's books that talk about miracles if they're not Bible stories. These are true stories from the mission field 
that we wanted to share with the next generation of missionaries. If for whatever reason, God forbid, our generation fails to reach the law, may we plant seeds in our children to pick up what we did not do. May our children begin to understand individuals who are real heroes, who have made real sacrifices that they can admire and look up to. Not some sports star, not some Hollywood star, but individuals who have given their life for the gospel. And every child that is here, we would like to give one of these. This is what we call a back to Jerusalem prayer bear. Um, these, the ones that look like the one I'm holding in my hand, it was handmade by women who were able to escape from ISIS. They actually put their names on each one of the bears. So this is not something that you're going to be able to pick up at Walmart. These are handmade by women that sat down and made these so that it would help remind people around the world to pray for the persecuted church. We want to provide this to every child here free of charge. Free of charge, they don't have to pay anything, but it doesn't come without a price. And the only price is we ask that child because we know that God hears the prayers of children. That every time they see this prayer bear, may it remind them to pray for the persecuted church. Now, you'll also see that we have some um, tree skirts and some Christmas decorations out there. Those Christmas decorations are very special to us. They were made by women that are connected with our Back to Jerusalem school. These are women that have been challenged in many ways. We have a, um, a little small clinic on the Back to Jerusalem training center where we deliver about 30 to 60 babies per, day, uh, per month. Uh, women that are in a crisis that don't want to abort their baby, we provide a place for them to come. We provide uh, prenatal, postnatal care, as well as help with the delivery. So we have a delivery center there. Those women that go through that program are at a disadvantage, and we've been able to preach the gospel to them, and they have handmade these items. Now, oftentimes, whenever people come and bring handmade items from the mission field, Guys, I know. I start businesses. I'll talk about that more tonight. I start businesses all over the world to help provide the opportunity for Chinese to go into different areas. And I know that oftentimes the things that are brought by missionaries to churches are absolute garbage. And in a way, they're nice, they're cute, but you don't really want them. Most people take them because they feel sorry for people. But they don't really, it's like, this doesn't really look that nice, it doesn't really serve a purpose, but I'll buy it because it's cute and the mission's nice and I want to support the mission. Those tree skirts that we brought, um, they are, have been overseen by one of our sisters in Norway. They're made in a Scandinavian design. If you were to go in any high-end market and buy those, you would pay a really high price because they're done with a Scandinavian design. And they're really, really special for Christmas. And those are available for donations. So any donation you give, you can take one of those with you. Those are limited. We have only a few of those left. But again, Pastor, thank you so much. It was a real honor, a real blessing to be with you guys. I loved being in your fellowship today, and I thank you for your prayers.